Welcome to Ritz and Cures for this week. And tonight, in about half an hour, you're going to meet our special guest, who is Dr. Amit Maney, who is an emergency physician and he's the Director of Emergency Medicine Training at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne at their Emergency and Trauma Centre. What a job. What a hell of a job to have. I'm not sure how he copes, but we'll find out what some of the pros and cons are of doing something that's so damned important. But first up, stop. Can you please wait (laughs) until I actually introduce you? How hard can it be? How hard can it be? Can you just sit there quietly? Right. But we are also talking tonight about the Citizens' Assembly. They've worked in Canada, in Poland, in the Netherlands and in Ireland, so could we do it here. Good evening to you, Steve Allen. How are you? Hello, Lindy. How are you? Can we just leave? Can we just leave? You know, actually, I think... I'm here. I'm here. I'm still here. I think my partner, Mr. Bill O'Shea, is actually trying to get rid of me. I'm still here, Steve. Good evening, Bill. How are you? Hi, Lindy. I'm going to be... What? what I was going to say to you is yes. Armit Maney's choppers go straight past my balcony four times a night. It's not I've his about, chopper. I've about and had enough. There's seriously enough. injured people in the chopper. Well, I've got a few skyrockets. I reckon it's time I put them in flight. A, count, a counterattack. You are referring to the elf, to the chopper that goes to the trauma department of the Alfred. Correct. And the flight path is over what Faulkner Park? Is it? Yeah, it's directly past my so balcony So there's people in listening in right. Tasmania and Sorry, aspects of Victoria who doesn't care one hoot <laughs> well, Can about I just say hello what? to all my friends in Barnboogle while we're, I'm on the air? You can. And Lost Farm. They don't care either. Oh, they do. They there's, don't. There's only a handful live there because it's very remote. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but they can almost see us from there because they're right up on the top of, on Bass Strait. They can almost see us across the water. Could they? That's rather nice. It's a lovely part of the world. Hey, tell me about, just to distract you, uh, tell me about a citizens' assembly. What does it do? Well, uh, the reason I'm interested in this is because on the 25th of May, uh, two, two, two weeks on Friday, three weeks on Friday, the Irish people are going to vote in a referendum and the vote is to repeal the Eighth Amendment to the Irish Constitution. And the Eighth Amendment... Uh, protects the life of a fetus. So it's basically an abortion referendum in Ireland. They already have same-sex marriage, but they still prohibit abortion. Now, the reason they're having the referendum, and I don't want to comment on the merits of the referendum, is because the Irish government at the last election promised to set up a citizens' assembly to deal with, um, well, basically five matters. Um, um, Abortion, fixed-term parliaments, referendums, populist, uh, sorry, population ageing and climate change. So they've, set, they've since honoured that promise and they've set up a citizens' assembly. Now, citizens' assemblies have been set up in two provinces of Canada, in Poland um, and in the Netherlands, and they tend to be set up for individual topics. And they are to address what's often called the democratic deficit, the democracy deficit. And the democracy deficit is a description of when governments really can't get their act together and can't get policy uh, really through. That would be to the benefit of yeah. the country or yeah. the province. Yeah. So an example for us was the, the turgid way we got a same-sex marriage change. It took years the government was dragged to a referendum. They ended up doing it out of desperate, you know, all those sort of examples. The example in Poland, why one was set up in Poland is because they had um, 
terrible floods and the people in Poland thought there was not enough done by the government to recognise flood mitigation and the government was just sitting on its hands. So they set up a citizens' assembly to deal with that. Now, the Irish one has uh, uh, only got as far, I think, so far as looking at the repeal of the Eighth Amendment. Which is? The abortion, uh, prohibition on abortion. Now, the interesting thing is um, the people who sit on the citizens' assembly are picked at random by a polling company from the electoral roll. Okay. So there are 99 people selected um, with alternates and the chair is named by the government. It's a retired Supreme Court judge who's the chair of the assembly. But all the rest are totally at random. From from a, a, a broad cross-section of the electorates That's across right. the country. That's right. So you, so and you, geographically and, ge- and right. occupationally. Okay. Steve, you've got this incredulous look on it's your face. It's my perplexed look. It is your perplexed look. Yeah, yeah, and my perplexed look. So I'm not quite sure how this differs. A, I need mental health treatment or why are you looking perplexed you at do, me You do, but that's a true, true non sequitur, meaning both statements are true, but they're not related. Not Actually, there's nothing wrong with needing mental health treatment. Don't make me Why are you looking so quizzical? People. No, because I don't quite get how that's different to what we do currently. So currently we vote people in. Currently we have all sorts of tools to listen to the public polling, for example. I remember once oh, a couple, about a decade ago, we had a youths, uh, you know, one of the governments brought together a whole lot of young people to get their opinion, which sounds yep. like a citizen's yep. assembly. Yep. So how's this different to just the normal um, way that our politicians listen to well, the public? Well, how's it different to a referendum, in fact? Well, the 199 people come together in Ireland over five weekends. They're briefed by people who, on both sides of the subject matter, People are allowed to make submissions. So the, uh, there were uh, over 3,000-odd submissions made in relation to this current debate about abortion, yep. and I, will, I think even more. But the, um, the, the chair allowed about a, a nine or ten groups to address the Citizens' Assembly from both sides of the question. Mm-hmm. They then discuss it over about five weekends, and they come up with recommendations for the government. So it sounds a bit like a, a jury, in fact. It is. A well, large a jury, jury is selected in the same 12. way. Right. A jury is exactly the same, picked at random from the electoral roll. So is the be- I'm just coming back to your question, Steve. So is the, is that the, is the benefit that it, it, to all intents and purposes, it takes the politics out of it? Correct. The, the, and party politics. That's why they don't like it. Yeah. Politicians don't like it. Yeah. So party po- Okay. So party politics. So there. So you. Because what actually happens is that these particularly tricky issues are often used to to wedge a party into a position that they might not necessarily believe in, uh, but because politically it's going to be detrimental to them in the eyes of the electorate or whatever the crazy reason is that they come up with, so that they will vote or perhaps drop a subject that should perhaps be be explored. So this is to try and take the politics out of it to get a broad cross, kind of to do a mini referendum, the microcosm Mm. of a referendum, and then those recommendations go back to your parliament. That's right. Uh, And they're not A-listed. They're ordinary people. But it's so not- is the government beholden yes, to take on? No, they're not. It's not they're not beholden. No, it's not binding on the government. So the government, in the case of the um, amendment to Article 8, the abortion, have decided they will accept the recommendation of the Citizens' Assembly and hold a referendum on the subject, which is happening in three weeks' time. That's how it came about. And that's what got me interested in it because, um, you know, it's an interesting way to take the decision-making other than the final decision to hold the referendum but to be persuaded by a group of 100 citizens meeting over five weekends to talk about these issues. 
You know, that bit appeals to me because one of the problems I think we've, you know, we've all, as democracies have developed, have been overly influenced by small groups of people with strong voices from both sides of politics. Yeah, and deep pockets. And so uh, I guess this is a way of at least getting around that. But I wonder, though, in our modern sort of era of enormous potential with regard to technology, why don't we just have the equivalent of ongoing referendums? Why don't we have the equivalent of every voter um, logged into the same sort of thing as my health, except it's whatever, my vote? And when the public, when the government wants to get a real cross-section of what the public wants to do, why not just have like or no, not like, you know, in social media style but on they, key policies? they have access to that information now. That the polling, polling that they yeah, do, they exactly. know what those answers are going to be. They just choose not to, uh, yeah. to, to listen to they them have or groups. to act upon them. Yeah, they so, do. so I don't see how that would yeah. change it Except perhaps we'd know, we'd also know the that answer. would be the key bit, and also we'd see the questions that were being asked. See, currently when we get polling, we don't know the questions that were are being asked, and we're getting the interpretation by the polling company or by the politicians who want to interpret the data to perhaps support their cause. You know, I think we we are potent, we potentially could get to the stage where we have almost instantaneous democracy instead of these three year cycles. Well, it, which I, I agree. I mean, it you're both me frowning. Greatly. I agree. It's, it could be problematic, but it could but, also be great. But that's populist politics. This whole issue is to overcome populist politics. People who get into the Senate on 120 votes and then call the shots in a hung parliament effectively, in a hung Senate. This is this is to overcome that because you've got 100 people that are a cross-section because the polling company selects them. The government doesn't select them. An independent polling company tended for the work, as happened in Canada as well, two provinces of Canada and the Netherlands. They tend... Attend for the work, get the work, and and pick them quite independently of the government of the day. Then they consider the issues over five weeks. They're not sitting at home over the breakfast table thinking, oh, I'll just press yes or no to this. This is a considered view, debated after a briefing from on both sides of the subject, which the government then says, well, this is a this is a jury of the population as broad as we can make it. Has made a considered this. decision. Yeah. I'm also worried about you know Russian bots making. Decisions yeah, that's a fair point. For us. Our technology's clearly, <laughs> as has recently fragile. been shown, yeah. not as strong as we anyway, thought. I think it's interesting, and don't ever think a politician will support this. Um, it's interesting that it's been supported in Ireland and Canada and the Netherlands uh, and Poland, but they tend to be um, supported for specific topics. So, for example, in Ireland, ageing population's a big issue. What, what would a Citizens' Assembly say about the ageing population. Well, should there be definite laws about elder abuse? Should it be mandatory to report elder abuse? Should we have a um, some better system of age care and age pension? You know, there's umpteen topics that uh, Citizens' Assembly could talk about, but given the explosion in the number of older people, as the baby boomers move into our aged care, how are we going to cope with that? So that's a legitimate thing for a Citizens' Assembly to talk about. Yeah, but I, the thing about the Citizens' Assembly is who are they accountable to? Only to the parliament who uh, hears their decisions. And the decisions, the history of the citizens' assemblies has been they tend to make unanimous decisions after the discussions. Or 99 of them. Yeah. There are, there are not, uh, if you like, uh, uh, groups that are disaffected. And I mean, some drop out. So with the 99 Island, there are 99 alternates. So if somebody drops out, they, they are replaced immediately below. 
in the case of the abortion debate, if anyone who dropped out during the debate was not replaced because the debate had already half gone through. So five of them dropped out from the 99 during the abortion debate and they've left it at 94. I don't know how I would feel, though. So I'm in Soweto Citizens Assembly for something that I am incredibly passionate about one way or the other. Barrier Reef. What, whatever. Um, it might be. Uh, so we get a Citizens Assembly. They, they come up with a decision that I'm unhappy with. And and I feel a sense of uh, anger because they are none of those people are accountable to me. I've had nothing to do with. I haven't elected those people into that position. Others haven't elected. It's just been a random, uh, random selection of people. So I am I going? I've, I actually I understand what you're saying. That, you know, a person gets into a position of power based on 120 votes, but that's kind of the way the electoral system works, uh, and that's how democracy works in this country. But this isn't democracy. No, they're not making it. Well, that's that's one of the criticisms of it, and also that they're too stupid stupid to really know what they're doing and how can you leave important decisions to a bunch of people who have got no experience. But they're not making the decisions. All they're doing is saying to the government, this matter should be put to the people. So, so in the, the end, upshot, what's the point? Well, because the government wouldn't have done it but for that. The government can't get a policy together because they, they still, the, But they still might. They of still the democratic might. deficit. They, they still might decide not to. They, they st- might. They might. But they're under a considerable pressure when they've appointed the Citizens' Assembly, to simply walk away from the Assembly. And that, and that hasn't so just, happened in Ireland. It's a bad look. It's Absolutely a bad look. a bad look. I mean, for example, let's, let's just take the Barrier Reef. You know, we've got no cogent way of solving the reef other than pouring lots of money at it, but no one's looking at the runoff of phosphates and the coal mining and all the other things that could be, you know, crown of thorns, all the myriad of things. Now, it could be that um, a group of people could come up with a five-point plan for reforming the reef, which isn't political and which people could vote on, but the government's not going to come up with a plan that it's going to, you know, take all the issues. And See, uh, that's what they can do. They can deal with all the issues in a non-party political environment. I'm just not convinced. The, my problem comes back to that issue of um, what you're calling the democratic deficit. Most of our, the vast majority of our leaders have got years and years and years of experience, have been in what? government for a long time, have been... Um, experienced in assessing issues quickly, looking at the pros and cons. They sure they sometimes... You've got to be joking. You mean, uh, for example... But wait a second, you want 100 people who've never had anything to do with science to sit down and decide what to do with the Great Barrier Reef. And I would argue that there are already thousands... After a briefing. Yeah, but there are already thousands of people who have been studying the Great Barrier Reef their whole life. There's a whole lot of politicians who have been debating it, you know, for the better part of a decade. Why are 100 people who've got no experience going to come up with a better plan than those who have um, been working on it for decades? Yeah, so, well... The, the people who are working on it for de- decades brief the citizens' assembly. Yep. They represent the population at large. The 99 of them in Ireland represent the population at large on that issue. They're only single issues they deal with at a time, one issue at a time. And it could be that having heard the briefings on both sides, they have a view. But why is it going to be going back to the government? They're going to have been reading well, the paper for the last decade. It's not governed decade. by interest groups, no lobbyists. Uh, you can't lobby them. Um, you can't volunteer to be on. You're selected at random. The, the, for example, in the case of the Barrier Reef, um, pressure, the Greenpeace can't get to them. The coal lobby can't get to them. You can have a briefing on both sides, but at the end of the day, they're free to make up their mind as to what they think. Now, in the case of an ageing population, there's lots of things they could come up with that um, m- maybe the population as a whole, the government as a whole, isn't willing to tackle. Would we get to a point though? Is one. Would we get to a point though where we just think, well, we'll just let these 99 people make all the decisions? What's the point of oh, well, having no, a parliament? You, you, no, you give them. Well, in the case of Ireland, they've got five topics to consider. Not 
105, five. And in the case of uh, Poland, it was one. It was flood mitigation. So we don't have a repeat of what happened, you know, in 2014. And in Toronto, uh, in, in Canada, it was similar. They were, they were confined specific issues. And after that, they disbanded. Oh, are they? Okay. Mm. So, so if you want to do the next fixture. thing, if you want to do the next thing, you get another 99 people in. You could do, I want yeah. to see if Rick is still with us because we've been banging on and he's been very patient. Hello, Rick. Hi, how are you going? Well, good, thanks. What's your comment? Um, yeah, listen, I, um, I took part, uh, some of your listeners would have known the story of what's happened in the air at Cancel with our rating strategy. So um, when the government, state government, did a, um inquiry into it, the recommendation came back was that the uh, cancel former citizens jury to um, to uh, basically work over the, the, the rating strategy of, of differential rates. And uh, it was a couple of weekends ago that we actually had a the citizens jury. Um, and how did it feel? Did it, how did it go? Um, yeah, I think well, look, it went really well. We only had sort of two days, and that that was probably one of the, the bigger um, problems was that we had a fairly short time frame, but. We were given options. For a few months before that, they had 12 people, which was an advisory group, um, and they put to us uh, a couple of options that they thought, and then we had the two days to um, assess and review those um, and possibly come up with our own decisions. And it actually is amazing that um, the way that they sort of run the weekend was that we actually came up with some, um, some extra recommendations that were fairly well thought through. and. Um, and exactly the same as you're talking here, although we only had 25 people and we had four drop out, um, that just goes back to cancel. Now, I think one of the points is is um, it does give a bit of political cover. So when that, when that uh, um, recommendation goes to the government for what you're talking about or for us for the cancel, mm. um, basically they don't have to go with it, but it's not going to be a good look if they go exactly <laughs> right. the opposite. Yeah, well, and when you've actually gone to the trouble of putting the jury together in the first place. Thank you, Rick. That's a, that's a, that's a local version of this, this oh, bigger issue. The beauty of being on this program is you get callers like Rick who come in and can give you a first-hand example of almost any topic. Yeah. Uh, and he's probably not still there, but I just wonder how they were selected. How were the 25 selected? Were they selected random? Were they from the rate base? You know, and if they were, well, that's a very similar model to what I'm talking about. I and think it's a very interesting thing to consider. I don't think we should dismiss it out of hand and we shouldn't be persuaded by politicians it's a bad idea because they have a, a conflict of interest well, in the whole of, problem. Well, it's kind of doing them out of a job. Uh, Owen, hello to you. Hi there, hi there. Um, really, really interesting discussion. Uh, I guess the perspective I'm bringing from it is um, about two and a half years ago I got um, pulled up for jury duty um, and uh, one of the comments that was just uh, been said in the last 10 minutes um, is do you really want to get, you know, a, a group of people who have no scientific experience or anything like that uh, to still get polled? I very much understand both sides of that because I felt completely overwhelmed and underqualified uh, to be making, it was a very, it was a sexual case mm-hmm. um, and um, I felt completely out of my depth. Uh, but similar to um, the recent plebiscite that we had where, you know, huge amounts of bad things going on with that. But one thing that was undeniable was the mandate of the people that got taken away that the politicians could use for it. And I think it's um, a really powerful thing um, that the Citizens Assembly or whatever you want to call it um, could add to things like, you know, the Barrier Reef or whatever subject you choose for it. Um, when you get, you get a cross-section of society and it's go, here's, here's the information, here's what the politicians are trying to make a decision on what do you guys reckon. Yeah, because you can't run away from what the what the Assembly has actually said. Exactly. Uh, uh, that's a really interesting point again. Thank you very much for that. 
Owen, it's, it's good to talk to you, Owen in Croydon. It's, I think that the similarity to a jury, and as you said, you know, you go in feeling as though you have no idea what you're doing, but you, most people are pretty intelligent. Well, we, we determine people's liberty by our, by our, our peers, not experts. People like us determine whether you go to jail or not go to jail, and that's a huge call, but you don't require qualifications to do that job. It's all about judging by what you listen to on the day. So it has validity. There's no question about that. Interesting discussion. Talking the Citizens' Assembly on Ritz and Cures tonight with Bill O'Shea, Steve Allen and me, Lindy Burns. In a moment, our special guest, Dr. Ahmet Maney from the Alfred Hospital. He's an emergency physician there and director of emergency medicine training. My name is Lindy Burns and my co-hosts are Melbourne lawyer Bill O'Shea and psychiatrist Professor Steve Ellen. And our guest tonight is Dr. Amit Maney. And we're going to hear about what goes on in a busy public hospital emergency department. Amit is an emergency physician himself. He's also Director of Emergency Medicine Training at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. And in fact, he and his colleagues meet ambulance helicopters when they land at the Alfred helipad with their critically ill patients. How difficult must that job be? Let's find out a bit more about it. Um, welcome to Ritz and Cures. Good evening. Thank you so much for coming in. Right. I, I'm kind of assuming this is your night off. Is that otherwise? No, you... I've had a couple of days off, so I'm I'm fresh and You're ready fresh to go. fresh and ready to go. You can come up on my balcony and watch the helicopters going past if you like, Armit. <laughs> I was anytime. just going to say, Bill, I, I do apologise formally on behalf of the emergency <laughs> services for any distress that the Please. helicopters cause. I, th- I actually think that there are people listening to this radio station for the first time tonight who've never met Bill before. <laughs> And they are getting the impression that he is an idiot uh, oh, and Lindy, cruel and harsh. That's, yeah, well, that's a fair impression. <laughs> We're fairly accurate here. Hey, why, why emergency? Why emergency work? What, what is it? I would have thought it was almost the most difficult area in medicine to work in. Why are you there? I often think back to the decision to go into emergency medicine and I imagine what advice I would give my younger self. Uh, and it's insane. It's absolutely nuts the weeks of nights the the funny shift work the late finishes uh it's it's really like a bizarre specialty but i just like fixing things i like to see people i like to talk to them uh, and just help them and the unpredictability of the job for me is what makes it really exciting uh you know one moment you might have a very sick patient that you have to do procedures and you know open their chests up or you know do airway management and you know the next patient might be you know a poor victim of domestic violence or a patient comes in with a, a broken ankle so just the unpredictability and the variety of work uh, is awesome. It must be one of those areas that's almost changed more than anything in medicine too because when I started there was virtually no you know just only going back to you know whatever it is 25 odd years there was no real specialists in emergency medicine in Australia back then. It was just beginning. Everyone took turns, the surgeons, the physicians, everyone took turns in ED. And then this, they started having all of these specialists coming through. And it's just totally revolutionised the whole approach to emergency medicine, I would imagine, in the last 20 years. Yeah, we're, a, we're quite a young specialty. Um, historically, I think the first emergency medicine college was uh, in the USA um, and the Aussie College formed, I think, back in the the mid-80s. Um, I was talking to one of the founding fathers of that college um, a few months ago, and I think it was the mid-80s. And you're right, before then, it was really just a mix of whoever was on call to go down to, to 
you know, the casualty, which is, you know, the the affectionate name of the, the, the ED altar. at the time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, can you <clears throat> tell me, um, is it true that the Alfred, for example, um, and for that matter, a lot of Australian emergency departments have a very low mortality rate compared to other emergency departments worldwide? And if so, why? Yeah. Um, so the Victorian system, it's not just the Alfred. There's There's three hospitals. There's the Alfred, there's the Royal Melbourne and the Royal Children's. Um, and we do actually, I think, have one of the lowest, if not the lowest, uh, trauma mortality worldwide. Um, I think the numbers are around overall around 3.5% in the less than 65 age group. And if you add the over 65s, it takes us up to about 7.5%. Of presentations. Um, of Yeah. Mm. Um, and we see about 7,000 trauma <clears throat> patients a year. Uh, of which about a quarter of those are severely injured uh, patients. Uh, I think the the main reason why the, the mortality rates are so low is that it really is a, a system-wide integrated approach to trauma management that starts from the instant the patient is injured from the time they go to rehab. So that includes all the pre-hospital time with the, the ambulance, the retrieval service, um, making sure the patient gets to the right hospital, uh, whether that's by ambulance or whether it's by you know, helicopters. Uh, and then the treatment in the emergency department, the ward management of those patients, many of whom are, have got complex injuries. And then finally, the rehab and, and follow-up. So it's all well and good talking about mortality, but actually mortality is actually less important than re- returning people uh, to functional um, well-being and being able to go back to work. So that's really, for us, the real marker. And I think the numbers on that are 75% of our major trauma patients will be back at work within two years. Wow. Which is awesome. That is extraordinary. Mm. Why? Well, I mean, you talk about you know the, this sort of holistic approach to it, but, but I'd imagine so much of it is that we've got – seriously, laugh at me here because I'm such a layperson but, – but it sounds like we've just got so much better at, at that – at that immediate response that that to me that would be the most critical stage wouldn't it when they virtually when they first arrive that we have got better at what we provide at at that at that very early stage of of injury so the mantra is uh getting the the right patient to the right hospital. Yes, you said that. What does that mean? Do they specialize? So, for instance, the three hospitals that manage trauma in Victoria We want all complex trauma patients across the state to come to us. There's no point taking a patient with uh, neurosurgical injuries, so brain injuries, to hospitals that don't offer that service. So in the old days, it might be that they would just go to the nearest hospital uh, and then there would be delays in getting them to their definitive care. Um, But the way our system is geared up is that these patients are delivered to us very rapidly. And it's worth pointing out, so as well as that incredible triage where in the old days you just went to the nearest person, now you go to a trauma centre. The trauma centres, if you go go into them, and I was in the Alfred about two months ago, a friend had a head injury, and uh, it's unbelievable. There's operating theatre, there's full operating theatres in there. There's an MRI scanner in there, and think, was I think, is there an MRI (coughs) scanner in the emergency department at the Alfred? Uh, Yes, we do. We have an MRI scanner and two CT scanners, uh, and pretty much every 
service and specialty you can think yeah, of. So, so it's sort of time got, It's like a mini hospital. It's like a trauma hospital. It's not really like a, an old-fashioned casualty yeah. or emergency department. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a mini trauma hospital at the entrance where all of the emergency services in, in the state are aware that if it's a certain level of trauma, not if you fall over and break your ankle, but a certain level of trauma, you focus it into one of these specialty centres. Are all of this happening across quick. the country? I mean, we've yeah, got Tasmania listening tonight. Is mm. it, would, it, would it be the similar situation in so Tasmania? Tasmania have the the Royal Hobart Hospital yeah. that handles their major trauma. Yeah. Um, a lot of the cases of severe trauma in the north of Tasmania will actually get sent to us. Okay, because it's closer. And who, or, who makes that call, Amit? Who, who decides that um, a particular patient goes to the Alfred and the Royal Melbourne rather than anywhere else? Uh, you know, is it the AMBOs who make that call or is there a central trauma system where they're allocated? So are you talking about the patients? Tasmania now or No, it's or a, just, just, just take Victoria for example. Who who makes the call that this this patient won't go to Box Hill, it'll go to the Alfred. So the ambulance officers uh, on the scene are very good at assessing patients and what their potential needs are. They have very good supports in the form of an ambulance clinician uh, and other kind of support uh, providers that they can contact. Uh, and again, because of that coordinated approach, um, the pre-hospital teams know the, the in-hospital workload. So they know that if Alfred's getting slammed with patients, they'll send some to the, the Royal Melbourne and, and vice versa. If, obviously, if it's a paediatric patient, they'll end up going to the, the Royal Children's Hospital. Uh, but really, it's the, the pre-hospital teams that, that decide. We then get a pre-notification and then it all just goes from there. I, see, my understanding of what goes on in terms of triage and, and you know, sort of that, that quick decision making, you know, this person can wait, that person needs to come in now or this person needs to go straight to get an MRI or we need to take them, whatever, that all comes from watching MASH. That's me. That's my understanding of what triage is, is what Alan Alder did with his patients in Korea. What goes on now? How, what, is, what, is, what does triage look like? So once the, the patient comes to us, I mean, I can only speak for, for the Alfred here and not the other hospitals as I've never worked in them. Uh, but for the Alfred, the patients will come in. If we've been pre-notified um, that they're coming by the ambulance, then we know really what we have to expect and then we usually have the right area ready so if they need to go into a trauma bay where we've got all the, the kit ready to go for whatever procedures they'll go into a trauma bay if they've got less severe injuries then they might go to the main part of our department so that all happens at the front end of the, the department so, so you're prepared that's another reason why your mortality rate's low isn't yeah, it it's if you're ahead of the now. game because you know they're coming Getting a pre-notification is fantastic. So if you get 20 minutes, half an hour, you can get blood products, you can get specialists down, you can get all the equipment ready. Uh, we do also take patients from just around the corner from where we work and sometimes we get you know, two-minute warning that the patient's arriving. So, so it's really uh, – there's a lot of uh, responsibility on on the paramedics really, isn't it, to, to make some decisions or to, to – you know, they have to give you a good diagnosis. Oh, the pressure on them is, it's is extraordinary. Tremendous. They're yeah. phenomenal yeah. these days though, aren't they, paramedics? They are so skilled, again, compared to, you know, 20, 30 years ago. They, mm. they do all sorts of and stuff. And can I say, you know, I was only joking about the uh, choppers, but the, 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 the paramedics on those who would be attending to a patient for quite some time, you know, perhaps from, from a, a country pickup, I mean, it's an amazing responsibility, isn't it, to have to, 
to have to keep them going until they till they can get them to hospital. I mean, well, they are full intensive care trained paramedics. They in that are chopper, incredibly skilled. Yes, mm. and indeed the equipment that would be inside those those vehicles now it would be quite extraordinary in comparison. Dr. Armit Maney is here. We're talking about being an emergency physician working in the emergency department at a major public hospital. This is Ritz and Cures with Bill O'Shea, Steve Allen, and me, Lindy Burns, as well as Joe, who's in Brunswick in Melbourne. Hello, Joe. Top of the evening, team. Um, I was uh, ringing up because about three years ago on the ABC, there was a story done by an emergency doctor from a London hospital, and he travelled around emergency hospitals and systems around the world and gave the Alfred pro- and the Victorian system overall the biggest tick for being the best system to get injured people into a trauma hospital and the highest level of survivability. It was just a fantastic thing. He was um, he went out on a helicopter for a retrieval and was blown away by the system. Right. Oh, that's great to hear. Funny you should say because I looked that up tonight. It's called Extreme ER. It was put out in 2013. It's only available on subscription. I was trying to download it from YouTube, but it's not available on YouTube. But I recommend it. If, you, if you're particularly in a school, schools can download this series of programs, and it is quite remarkable. Um, uh, UK production, you remember it, Amit? You would have been at the offer when that was filmed. Oh, it's a, it was a great set of um, shows, actually. Um, Kevin Fong, I think, That's was right. the um, anaesthetist who basically went into um, television who came out, and we had a great time. Actually, I'm pretty shy, so I actually stayed off off the camera when they were filming. Uh, but it was it was a fantastic show, so I really do recommend it. And obviously, it. the hospital came out with flying colours. Hello, Pat in Bendigo. Oh, hello. What would you like team. to say? Um, just about services in the region. I mean, there is trauma, and there is not somatic trauma. There's just absences of services in the region. My husband died last year, cardiac arrest, clot couldn't be cleared here at the much lauded new hospital. We only have a catheter lab three days a week that's open. Mm -hmm. He chose to have his heart attack on a Sunday of a long weekend. I'm not quite sure what's provided by the private hospital, but all I heard was they were looking for a cardiologist. The helicopter's booked. So Alfred is flying a helicopter. But my husband had his cardiac arrest in the ambulance on the way to the helicopter. And, you know, massive input into trying to bring him back. But he never did what he didn't want to do, so he didn't come back. Oh, that's interesting. Look, we're sorry to hear of your loss, Pat, and you do raise a really interesting point about I can see the understanding of why we focus on three, the, the three big centres, and that you know Victoria and Tasmania are not particularly big areas. I dread to think what goes on in somewhere like Western Australia, but in, but you know these sorts of things are going to happen where the the, the the chopper is already being employed somewhere else. That someone, you know, the timing isn't great. That it's at a at a quiet period on a weekend. Perhaps staffing levels aren't up to aren't up to scratch. What, what? How do we? Is this being addressed? Is this being looked at? And how do we make this better in the future? Oh, that's a, that's a really uh, difficult question, and I'm, you know, I'm really sorry about the, the caller's husband who, who passed away. Um, it's really challenging when you have um, areas, especially in like regional areas, that, that don't have the same specialist cover that we have here. 
uh, in the city. And I think that's Australia one. You mentioned WA. The distances are absolutely vast. And certainly in the Northern Territory, if you have a heart attack in the Northern Territory, I think there isn't actually a, a, a cardiology lab for them to go to. They actually have to get... Um, flown to Adelaide, wow. which is, you know, as yeah. the crow flies, it's the, the closest. And we were just talking center. about how crucial the, the timing in all of this is as well. So there's some work still to be done. And, Absolutely. And, and the, the vastness of Australia is one of the, the biggest challenges for, for these sorts of things to face. Um, could you tell us um, your most memorable case? Well, they're obviously keeping cl- patient confidentiality, but um, you're in the ED where you, you, you know, where you've actually had to think on your feet and do something that made a difference to a patient? In a big way? The the most recent thing, which was quite traumatic for me actually, was having to do uh, a procedure called a surgical airway uh, on a patient who was essentially suffocating on their own blood. Um, again, it was a trauma patient. We didn't really get much of a pre-notification that they were coming. They had terrible facial injuries. And um, I remember he was lying there and suddenly just went rigid and was struggling to breathe and his oxygen levels were dropping and uh, just the decision to go and slice into his neck and put a breathing tube, sorry if it's a bit graphic for your uh, your listeners, but um, to, to put a breathing tube into his airway directly bypassing the usual route, which would be through the mouth, um, was particularly challenging but has to be done very quickly. Yes. Had you done it before? Uh, I had done two of those procedures before, but it had been some time since uh, I had done them. And do you just go into, uh, I was almost going to kind of call it crisis mode. I'd, I'd imagine working in emergency that, and in that environment a lot that you, you would be very good under pressure, that there's, you know, perhaps you do all your falling apart later the next day or you know, like when you leave the studio. But, uh, but when you're in that space that things kind of slow down, do you just go into muscle memory? How much are you thinking about what you're I – mean, how, how do you feel emotionally going through that process? So it's, it's really interesting. The emotion almost – isn't there at the time. You're right, it does tend to come after when you think about it. But what we do is we have a series of planned responses for events that happen. So, for instance, in this case, the response to someone losing their airway potentially and dropping their oxygen sats, if you think that you're not going to be able to intubate that or put a breathing tube in through the mouth, the next step is to, to go to the neck. So there's no real thought involved. The yeah. decision just it's gets what, made. It's just what you do. But do they all stand back and leave it to you? What, I mean, what, you're, you're in charge. No, so we've got a, a, a full trauma team present. We've got uh, anaesthetic doctors. We've got the ED doctors. We've got a full suite of nursing staff. So the plan just goes perfectly. The anaesthetist is at the head end. Um, they realise it's going to be a bit of a challenge for them to to do the breathing tube uh, in the time that is required to actually do it. And then the decision just gets made and then you just have one operator, which is me and an airway assistant, and we just get on you with the You go through the process. Steve? So, and part, this is just getting me thinking that, you know, how do you train for it? That is part of your job, director of training. So what do you do to train the young um, doctors and nurses coming up through the system to get ready, ready for this? How do you train them without putting patients' lives at risk? So we, obviously, we get a lot of practice on, on real patients, but we actually do simulations uh, and we run through scenarios and we often have quite complex discussions on, you know, what we would do in this situation or that situation. Uh, we practice all the, the procedures, uh, 
Sometimes uh, we run cadaver labs, so you know people who have donated their their bodies to to science. We are able to practice our life saving procedures uh, on on those, uh, and there are various. Uh, models that we can practice on as well. Yeah, so to get that work done. I want to read out a couple of texts and then ask a final question. Uh, one from Jeff that says, Hello guys, having these central highly equipped trauma centres is great, but I hope that the regional hospitals aren't doing without what they need to save lives. I live three hours from Melbourne and it still takes some time for the HEMS helicopters to fly out to these regional centres and back to Melbourne. And no, I'm not in the sticks. I'm in Albury-Wodonga, population in excess of 100,000. So reiterating that regional situation and PIP in Nidri doing the same. What about the lack of services at other big but not trauma centres? They still get trauma and the uncoordinated approach to referral from a small centre to a bigger one. Many big centres are not good at taking smaller centres referrals if not not super serious trauma but smaller places doesn't have facilities. It's an ongoing problem. So there's issues there too. So we have um, here in Victoria, we're very lucky, we have a service called Adult Retrieval Victoria. I just have to plug them because they do some phenomenal work. And if you're in a smaller hospital and you have a patient and you're struggling with not just trauma patients, but patients who require a level of care that is beyond the capabilities of that hospital, you just have to make one phone call to that that service and they will organise the rest. They will send a physician to that hospital by helicopter, by road, and they will basically, they will deal with the... The What's the name of the, of the group again? Uh, Adult Retrieval Victoria. Right. I didn't know that. Does that work in Tasmania too, Emma? Do you know? Uh, no. So Tasmania <clears throat> has its own retrieval service. Um, that is just a Victorian state um, service. And my final question to you tonight is: How do I, how do I not end up in emergency? How do I how do I live my life so that I can? Stay away. As, as lovely and as talented as you seem to be, Ahmed, I, I prefer it if we didn't meet under those circumstances. Um, it's, it's very difficult. The, the very nature of emergencies uh, would dictate How do we know? You, you never know when stuff's going to happen. We stay off ladders. So uh, there are things that you can avoid doing, Bill. You're right, absolutely. If, if you're not very steady on a ladder, don't go on a ladder. Uh, don't drink and drive. There are so many things that, that you should avoid doing. To, an to apple a day. Don't forget an apple a day. That's the golden rule. Nutrition. Absolutely. Good nutrition, very important. And what about, I mean, you, you probably don't want to go into this now, but should old people from residential aged care end up in your department because they had a stroke and they've got a, and the family require them to go to an ED like yours? Should they be there? That's a very interesting question, Bill. And I think after the Advanced Care Directive uh, legislation changed, I think it was in March uh, this year, Hopefully, those instances will become less and less over time. Yeah, we've covered that a little bit in, in this program. It's a, it's an incredibly difficult area and, and an emotionally challenged one. And I, I, this whole conversation, you've just been so wonderfully calm. And I can just imagine that calmness emanating from you when you're within the emergency department itself and within that, that trauma centre. Uh, and I, I, I thank you for having that. Maybe it's, I don't know if you had that before and you've just brought it to the job or the job has brought it out of you. But it's, um, it's been lovely to have you in here to, and to hear a little bit about what's going on. No, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Dr. Amit Maney, who is an emergency physician and director of emergency medicine training at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne at their emergency and trauma centre. Wrapping up Ritz and Cures for tonight, um, there's a great text that says, ARV are amazing. They saved my dad's life, getting him from Echuca to Melbourne. And now I work with Amit at the Alfred. The team is incredible. 
There's no name there, by the way, so you can't go up to somebody tomorrow and say thank you for that text. Um, thank you, Bill. Nice to see you. Pleasure, Linda. Melbourne lawyer Bill O'Shea and Professor Steve Allen. Thank you. Cheers, Lindy. See you soon. Who's a psychiatrist and director of the Psychosocial Oncology Program at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne.